Today is the 5th of October, and this chapter is the six stages of practice, which, in a sense, is really a continuation and an elaboration of what we read and discussed last week, listening to the body. Um, so, in, in a sense, Joko lays out, as she sees it, both further um, elaboration of the fundamental noticing thought or noticing emotion thought and listening, experiencing of the whole body. And she lays it out both chronologically, in other words, how she sees it developing in people's lives, and um, in terms of outcome, um, both in terms of the consequences of ongoing practice and also what en- ends up being the, if we call it, the stumbling blocks or the hindrance or entanglements that keep us going in ways that perpetuates difficulties or perpetuates our uh, being caught up in emotion, thought, and the beliefs that grow out of that where we react to the circumstances of life out of our beliefs rather than noticing how those beliefs hinder us from experiencing and relating in life. So that's what this chapter is. Uh, uh, In one sense... It's, as I said, a further elaboration, both of the practice, but also to give us a sense of the timeline and the um, patterns. Now, of course, none of this is necessary, because if you do the fundamental practice, you don't need to know what the problems are going to be, what the timeline is going to be, what... However, we do need to know it's encouragement and support for us and a reminder when we're not present, when we're believing something of, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, this is why um, I'm I'm having these outcomes. Or, as she puts it, Um, This is my insisting on emotional judgments and beliefs and the the consequences of that, despite the fact that I thought I had taken care of this last week, last month, last year. I thought I'd gone beyond it, and all of a sudden, here I am again. So, So that's what I wanted to start with and since you've all read it and le- read last week's, and I hope you've worked with it in the, some of the ways I suggested last week and some of the ways she suggested, I'd like to hear what you all have to say. Now, there's someone at the Zen, Prairie Zen Center, so they should be on this call. I don't know. So we began the discussion of this, and now... 
Springfield, do you have anything you want to say about what I said? Now, but, okay, um, so I'll, I'll repeat what I said essentially is that this is an elaboration of the previous chapter of listening to the with, as, the whole body. Um, and it, it, it's an elaboration both chronologically um, and in terms of forms of practice and in terms of ways that we think about our practice and by elaborating in this way hopefully Joko or I should say Joko is hopefully encouraging us and in a way feeding us to to support us when it becomes difficult because the simple task of practice is to notice and work with the emotional thought, beliefs, um, and our attempt to constantly live out of those judgments and to turn away from that by noticing them, by working with them, so that we can be this experiencing life we are. So, Ten years ago, at least, um, Karen, your wife, remember Karen? Yes. <laughs> I know you don't see her much anymore, but anyway, um, she gave a talk at the Zen Center, uh, and it was the top title of the talk. In fact, I may have it recorded somewhere, but the title of the talk was "Stages of Practice." And in reading this chapter, I was reminded of that. And I remember after the talk, I was talking to Karen and. I didn't really get it. I mean, I I didn't feel like there was such a thing as stages of practice, like there was some delineation or graduation. Um, And that's probably because I really didn't hear her talk that well at that time, Uh Um, because there really is no demarcation and delineation between a stage, one stage and another. And Joko talks about this. It's more like, you know, we rarely notice, and sometimes it's a discouragement, what we might call progress in our practice. Um, It's more like, um, you know, going from an adolescent to an adult. When did that happen? It's it's a gradual maturing as opposed to a transition. Does that make sense? Uh, I hear it, yes. Um. (laughs) The words made sense. I, it, it makes sense only in, in the, in the sense that we lose, we forget how it used to be, or how solidly we believed the stories. Um, as Joko says, in a sense, she's building on a Zen tradition where there's the, um, were the six stages of the ox herding pictures or the ten ox herding pictures as ways of describing practice. But our tendency is, of course, to turn that stages into a continuous 
gradation so you go from one to two to three to four instead of the fact that it's so it's circular or spiraling and you can be flip out of one back into another just as a result of the cause and effect circumstances and how you respond to them or react to them and there isn't any uh, label that you get saying oh I'm in stage 3 I'm in stage 4 because you're never anywhere except where you are right now and yet your ongoing practice is what nurtures and supports and makes possible where you are now so there are stages in in that sense if we want to talk about stages and if we don't that's fine too well i just think you know one of the hindrances i think sometimes in practice for us is this idea of progress making progress and yeah. thinking we know what progress means yeah but that that's another yeah. emotion yeah. thought that's a, exactly another sort of judgment that's useless right but it is helpful to notice less suffering yes uh, however that comes up in my experiences with uh-huh. what she has said here is probably what you have said Elihu is that you know and until there was a certain awareness, we were just totally caught up. I was totally caught up in it and totally enjoyed the drama. <laughs> now it's more like I notice it. Sometimes I say, what the hell? I, I really okay. want to be angry. I really, I don't care. I know this is not, you know, my practice, but I'm really enjoying this drama. So I, I see myself doing that and I, and mm-hmm. I kind of see the difficulty of let it go, letting it go. And then I also try to work with sensations. But I, just as she says in the book, I find it a lot of times so boring yeah. um, to just, just I, I intellectually understand that, that, that if I, that if I just can be aware, I can more directly experience it. So I would say rarely <laughs> do I, ever see this thing she labels as stage three which is just just being the experience um, but I think that would be such a place of reduced suffering yes so um, I don't know if I believe that this is true or not but it, it certainly um, if you practice it does seem to reduce suffering because the drama does just take over it just does take over and it is suffering and it so it it feels like it's it's true Mm -hmm. that to kind of see that for what it is and let it go so I don't know the struggle is to let it go and not really just want to stay there when I read some of the things she says you know like I'm just so down today or I'm so depressed or whatever you think oh yeah well I just said that to myself yesterday so (laughs) Um, but she labels it like that it helps it helps to notice that I'm more often labeling it yes and that's good 
And the fact that you could even say it's so dull means that you at least can appreciate it a little bit and therefore you set up the momentum to remember when you, you're starting to go into that direction or when to remember when you're starting to go into the direction of, ah, oh, really, I really am believing that. I really... The more you hear this and the more you do it for yourself, the more, in a sense, you've set up a momentum so that when it occurs again, you don't have to buy into it in the same way or for this to same extent or without making an effort at some point. Uh, Gimio? Yes. Um, using Debbie's example, mm-hmm. would, would you say it's helpful, you know, if, if we notice that we're getting upset and we're feeling justified and righteous in our upsetness, even though we do get caught up in it, having noticed it is still helpful. Yes, and... Noticing it or finding what signals to us to make a particular effort that's skillful right now, meaning whether it's to stand still and breathe a little, or to label the thought, label the thought, label the emotion thought, or whatever other way works for you in the midst of the circumstances of your life. It's easy to do when we're sitting still or when we're walking because sitting, walking, breathing, being present in a sense it amplifies those um, when those judgment thoughts, beliefs start running because they're so much louder and more evident but that's the easy time the more difficult time is when we're in the midst of it in the circumstance interacting with others or being self um, contained and entangled or whatever other circumstance is the ones where it's hard for us that that's where we need to find a way to for a moment to work with it to see what we have to do and what supports us to do what we have to do in Joko isn't saying that there's these different things to do. I mean, that's what she said in the first first chapter, the listening to the body. There's only, in a sense, two things to do, and then they're all permutations and of that. She's talking here more about how the circumstances of our life are our practice and how they the very same circumstances are taken differently because of our ongoing practice and therefore the momentum, if I use that kind of word, of practice or the strength and the habits of practice that make us make it possible for us to take the circumstances in a different way than we used to. I mean, that's she sort of starts with the way uh, she calls it the pre-path way, um, which she says, wholly caught up in our emotional reactions to life. Um, and we've, we've got life in all sorts of ways to emotionally react to, whether it's internally 
or whether it's in our immediate friends, family, or whether it's in larger circumstances, or work, or the weather, or any number of, of venues that we wholly are caught up about. And then it goes from there. Yes, just yes, speak just up. Speak up. Okay. Alright, so I have uh, another question uh, based on what I think Debbie is her name was saying. Um, is, is, it ever, is it ever useful to just go ahead and enjoy that drama or just really rest in that you know, mess that you're making? Because I, I, I just, I ask because I remember Joko saying to me at some point, you know, as I was uh, worried about how much I was uh, oh, you know, I can give several different examples, you know, uh, biting my nails, uh, had a sleepless night, smoking. And she was like, so when I would say, let's just use the nail biting. So she's like, well, just really bite your nails. You know, just really do it, you know. And so uh, how, does, how does that relate to what we're talking about? Okay. okay. My original question. Good. Good. I will say it a little differently. Since you used two examples, you, you started with biting your nails or smoking. So let's say smoking. So if you're going to, if, if smoking's the issue and you're in the middle of smoking, then when you notice you're smoking, you might literally make the effort to smoking being your bodily listening practice moment. Meaning, you, you're attentive to the cigarette between your fingers. The inhaling, just being present for all the bodily um, functions, all the emotion thoughts that arise as you smoke, if there are. Or just simply... Just smoke. It's almost as if, if, if you excuse the expression, you treat the um, cigarette as if it was a a joint of marijuana and just be as meticulous and careful with your smoking. I don't mean um, exaggerate it, but be as present. If If that's what you're doing, do it that way. And then, you know, I'm not saying smoke either one of those items, but if you do, do so as your practice. In fact, I will say that um, this very same question, I remember someone asked Soen Roshi about it, and he said something very similar. Then if you smoke, just... You know, and he just said, turn smoking into your practice of being present as you're smoking. If I'm not saying smoke, but if you call... If, if it's so powerful that you have to do it, then do it as you're doing it. Does that make sense, Joyce? Yeah, but so back to the thing about resting in your anger. I mean, is that is that applied to that as well? Um, if you if you bodily sit in it, let me say it that way. I don't mean churn more thoughts about it, and I don't certainly mean spouting it out at other people. But if you bodily sit 
whole body anger, just be there. But then notice as you want to go to thinking about it, or emoting about it, or giving an excuse about it, or justifying it, treat that as again, be coming back to being the anger. Or, you could do it as a, as a play. You could set a timer, give yourself three minutes, and then start saying out loud all the reasons why your anger is justified. I'm angry at her because of this. Yes, I know I'm right because of this. And I know she did that. And she always does it. And do it that way as well. All of those are skillful means. I'm not saying one should do that regularly. But when it's that strong, then work with it that way. We each have to find the ways to work with the circumstances that our life are. And as our life is this moment, it's seeing what we're capable of now. Of course, it's much better if you could simply notice having anger thoughts and then just being bodily present and not giving rise to or entangling in any more anger thoughts, justifications, reactions. (coughs) But if that's not so, then work with it in a way that's skillful for you. It might be that you have to do walking practice, and with each step you have to walk the anger. So each step has to be a walk of anger step, till you could just be the stepping anger and being able to let it go as you put down the step. And then just being, breathing, whole body, moment. You have to find what works for you. And when emotions are particularly strong, entanglement is particularly strong, then the kind of practice you need to do with that particularly strong emotion, judgment, belief is a different kind of practice than when you're sitting still, upright, breathing, and there's nothing particular that you're caught up in just sort of random mind chatter. So, each of us has to develop the capacity to be the director, so to speak, of our practice, and to use the wide array of practice tools that we develop in the process of living and in the process of ongoing practice. And that's part of what this chapter is by talking about different stages. She talks about different aspects of how we practice with it. And how it's supported and we support our life in the ongoing practice. Last 
It's a, a tremendous sacrifice because of what? Um, because, well, usually I guess because it feels like uh, if I, huh, I don't know, like if I let go of this, like, like there's just some reason why I, I have to hold on to this. I cannot, I cannot yeah. just let this pass. I'm not, I'm not sure why, why, but I mean, that's why I say it feels like a big accomplishment and yes. a sacrifice to actually, at times, I mean, with the real strong things, you know, yes. not necessarily with the little things. It, it's because we believe the drama is who we are, or we are so completely caught up and entangled in the drama and all the emotional and um, the thought and all the other aspects of the drama that it seems like we're sacrificing everything of how we are and how we do and how we function in the world if I give this up, if I let go of this for a moment. So yes, that's why it seems like such a tremendous sacrifice because it's almost like we think, well, this means I'm sacrificing all the times in the past when I was caught up and entangled in this drama. So yes, it's good that you notice it, and at least that's the way I say it. Now it might seem something else for you, so you just have to see how it's so for you. Yeah, I mean that's interesting to think about. I I, I have I have thought many times about why is it so hard to uh, yeah why, why is it so hard to just kind of to uh, to recognize this and then. Know, step away, kind of, and uh, and um, and it's. I've never really come up with a with a with an answer. Just, yeah. Just that I know that it's certainly, as someone else said, I mean, it's less certainly dramatically less suffering if I if I can. But um, but but why it's so hard? I don't know. Maybe it's like it's like death. <laughs> it's like a kind of death, you know, like or something like that. Uh-huh. Well, let me say that on the bottom of the page 190 that you just cited, she does say something. Um, She says that as there's more and more periods where you can say to yourself, oh, I don't know why I thought this was such a problem, as practice goes on, that you could say, you can discover, oh, it was such a big problem, and now all of a sudden I don't even know why it was such a problem. So that's, I want to bring that side of it too. Yeah. I remember as a sheep, um, and this was during one of the talks you taped. Yes. Somebody, uh, we were talking about something along these lines, and somebody there said, you know, uh, what's left? Speak, oh, what's left? Okay, you got What's left? Good. That's a good, a good question. And, of course, that comes out of our thinking about 
well, what would I be if I wouldn't be da-da-da-da, caught up in these thoughts, caught up in the anger, caught up in these beliefs, entangled in this, doing all, what's left? And at first, as Joko says, it might seem dull and boring. Um, and we're afraid that it's going to be dull and boring. And part of it is becoming familiar with that. But the other part, and I'll just say Joko says this, and you either can testify out of your own life and remember that testimony. On the end of, at the end of the chapter on page 192, she says, the harvest is joy and peace, meaning that's what's left. Or to say it a different way, a little later, um, it's a life of joy, but a life of joy doesn't mean that we're always happy, happy, happy. It means simply that life is rich and interesting. Um, we may even hate certain aspects of living, but it's more and more satisfying to live on the whole. We no longer fight life. This is the, the, at the end of that first paragraph on page 192. So, but saying it in a book is one thing. What's much more valuable is for us to taste it for ourselves in our own practice. And as we practice, we do. Even though, of course, old habits reassert themselves, whether in terms of our reaction to circumstances or the circumstances that life brings us, even though we thought, I don't have to deal with this, all of a sudden, here we are, having to deal with something that, <coughs> excuse me, um, brings forth reactive emotion, thoughts, fears, um, could be something like the sickness of someone that's close to us, our own illness, fears, changes in life circumstances, economic, social, familial, etc., things that happen in the world, um, all sorts of things like that. All of those might bring up what we thought, oh, I thought I had this all taken care of, and, and things were going smoothly, and all of a sudden I come home and a sinkhole has opened up and my house has been swallowed up into it. Or it seems that way because emotionally such and such happened, or this and this happened to a family member, or and you could go on. And there we have the push comes to shove of living in the moment of responding to that or getting entangled for a shorter or longer period in our emotional judgments and reactions and having to work with those. That's why she says uh, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the time. Because we aren't the bosses of the ongoing changing circumstances of the universe. Everything is impermanent and everything is interrelated and things occur inside and outside. And those are our, if I'll use the term, practice opportunities or those are where we have to deal with what habits arise and what reactions we start believing or judgments we start 
that start clouding our vision and ability to be present. But we don't have to worry about those, because they'll occur when they occur. And until then, our ongoing practice is what more and more opens up our life to us. Whether it's, um, as we've said, dull, boring, ordinary, plain. But those are all wonderful. Um, Next time you have a glass of water, please make an effort to just taste the plain, ordinary water. Or, drink it down fast and then you don't notice it. So, whether it's an ordinary glass of water or something special, if, for instance, Joyce brought up um, habits, it might be that you like to have a piece of chocolate every day, which I do. I like to have one square of dark chocolate a day. I don't always get it, but I like it. When you do that, now someone else might say you you don't have to do it, and of course I don't, and sometimes I don't. But when I do it, make an effort. Use that as a reminder to be present, to really taste as that dissolves, or as you chew it, In fact, do it with everything. When you eat, just eat. When you drink, just drink. But taste, feel, be the drinking, whole body drinking, whole body eating, whole body... Then you have all sorts of opportunities. But I'm talking, and this should be more your opportunity to bring up aspects of this chapter. I would say both. In in other words, as we practice, the strength and momentum of the judgments, both in so-called ordinary events and in unusual events, <coughs> will change. Because when when there's less force, it doesn't perpetuate it. But... There is no guarantee. It's because we don't keep feeding it and because we develop the capacity to notice it and work with it when it does come up, it doesn't give it as much strength. However, <coughs> excuse me, I have a cold. <coughs> However, um, That doesn't mean that there aren't times where out of the blue, all of a sudden, there's all this judgment that we're find arising. We then, because we've become sensitized to it, we're able to notice it more, or notice it more quickly, if I say it, and consider it part of our practice of being 
the experiencing of listening with the body, as ev- whichever way we say it, of being present. And because of that, it's likely that there'll be less. However, we're in living in a world where all sorts of circumstances occur, meaning circumstances with friends and family, circumstances of birth and death and aging and illness and health and growth and all sorts of things. So we are in the midst of that and we make choices that result in other things occurring and being. So, yes, I'll say to what you asked, it it changes and lessens over time and it doesn't mean there aren't outbreaks whether it has to do with what we do or what other people do or the coming to fruition of events that occurred at, at a past time. And then we, we've we developed more capacity to deal with it as long as we continue to use the circumstances as the basis and the support of our ongoing practice. So I... I, I think I answered you, Debbie, but if you don't think so, please. No, I, I think you did. Thank you. You're welcome. So, I would encourage everyone to reread the chapter Listening to the Body and reread this chapter after our discussion. Um, I want to mention next week which is the 12th, I won't be here. Um, I'll be out of town. Hopefully I'll be in the Redwoods, and hopefully um, things will be okay there. Um, And we will continue with the chapter Curiosity and Obsession the week after that. Um, There is going to be a Zazenkai on... Saturday, I don't know the date, but I'm sure Musha knows. 14th. The 14th uh, in Champaign, and I, I expect to be back um, in town by then to do it, so I'll be there then on, on the 14th in the morning, and I'll be there on the 15th in, through Skype, assuming um, the universe cooperates. So, thank you all. Thank you. Good night. Good night.